The following message was recorded as part of the morning worship celebration of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church in Eatonton, Georgia. More information about the ministries, staff, and worship offerings of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church can be found on our website at www.lopc-pca.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Kings. 1 Kings, the 19th chapter. Again, as I told you last week, I'll be using the New American Standard Translation, NAS, and I encourage you to bring that translation with you so you can follow along word for word. 1 Kings 19, and we're going to begin with the first verse. Please find your place, and once you've found your place, look up so I'll know that we're ready to move on. And I encourage you to keep your Bibles open in your lap and keep referring back to see why I say the things I say. It's all about His Word, folks. So I encourage you to be people of the Word. 1 Kings 19, we're going to begin with the very first verse. We're going to study through the 13th. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, we pride ourselves in our country on education, on comprehension. But we need more than that this morning, Lord. We need your Holy Spirit to work with me and to work with all of us that the words on these pages that you inerrantly have recorded for us might be alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and pierce into not just our minds but into our hearts. So humbly, Lord, I come to you and ask you, help us to study together and help us to take this home with us that it might impact our lives and the lives of those that we love and those we come in contact with. For I ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone asked me one time years ago why I use, on occasion, historical examples. They said, why don't you just use examples of today? And I said, well... I think that's part of the problem in our society. We haven't learned from those who went before us. Back in 1880, a family in Alabama had two daughters. One of those daughters, when she was born, got to about six months of age, and she started saying her first words. And the family got very excited. All of us, I'm sure, want to hear the first word, daddy. No? (laughs) I used to coach our daughter, daddy, so she'd say that first. The little girl got to be about a year old and could walk without stumbling. She very quickly learned to pull herself up and, after crawling, to take a few steps. And at a year old, she was moving down through the house. At 18 months of age, she got sick. The doctors diagnosed what she had as brain fever. 
which probably meant they didn't know what was wrong with her. She ran an exceedingly high temperature for a prolonged period of time. And then, when the fever finally broke, her mom and daddy were heartbroken to find that their little girl couldn't see and their little girl couldn't hear. And for the most part, she spent the rest of her life, Helen Keller, just vaguely in touch with the world that she was a part of. But mostly, not being able to see what you and I see and not being able to hear what we hear. Let me tell you the reason I mentioned her. A lot of folks in our world don't realize that we're born into this world, all of us, without exception, with a spiritual disease. And that spiritual disease comes from the behavior of Adam and Eve, where they broke God's heart by not letting him be God, and instead they wanted to be the God in their own life by doing what they wanted. God told him, if you do that, you shall surely die. If they hadn't done that and sin hadn't come into the world, Helen Keller would never have lost her sight and her hearing. Nor would you and I ever suffer from any of the physical ailments we suffer from. Imagine that. But they did. Original sin took place. God did what he said. He put them out of his presence so they couldn't enter by their own initiative again. And they began dying physically and spiritually. They were in big trouble. Every generation has now had passed down, along with our good looks and our personality and all those other qualities that we all like to think we have, we've also passed sin down to our kids and to their kids. And the impact is absolutely colossal. One of the things that that sin has done is it has made it impossible, left to ourselves, for us to be able to see God or hear God. We can talk about him, we can learn about him. Intellectually, we can comprehend some about him. But to be able to see him or hear him, the Holy Spirit has to reside in here and we need to come to know Jesus as our Savior. And he gives us a new heart. And then we begin, like a little child, learning to walk. We begin to see God. And we begin to hear him. Now, in a perfect world, and this is not a perfect world, the progression would be that day by day we'd be able to see him more clearly and hear him more accurately. But that's not how it works. I sure wish it would work that way, but it doesn't. What we do is we see and we hear and then we break our sight and we stop listening. And we do what we Presbyterians call, we backslide. You can't lose that which you didn't earn. So we don't lose our salvation, but we can sure make a mess out of life, can't we? I liken backsliding into climbing up a telephone pole. And when you get up the pole away and you start back down, you know what's waiting on you? 
these mean little spurs and they create great pain. But when we cross over into heaven, there'll not be any more backsliding and you and I'll be able to see perfectly and we'll be able to hear perfectly. Our passage today tells us about a godly man, a man who had a heart for the Lord, who did his share of backsliding. And when it happened, it was terribly painful. I want you to follow along as I read about Elijah and a very dark day in his life. I'm reading from 1 Kings, the 19th chapter, starting with the first verse. Folks, listen carefully. God is about to speak to us. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under the juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a baked cake and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenants, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountain and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? May God add his blessing. 
to the reading of his word. Might it just resound over and over in our hearts. If you look at the first couple of verses, you'll see a threat is issued. It says, now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Well, Jezebel already knew part of what he'd done. She knew that he'd come a couple of years earlier and confronted her husband with the sin of his life. That he had systematically been removing the worship of God from his land. That he had married a pagan woman named Jezebel. And that he was killing the ministers of that day who ministered on behalf of the God of the scriptures. Jezebel knew all that. She was a party to all of that. She knew that that same prophet Elijah had challenged her husband and the whole nation of Israel to a trial by fire on top of Mount Carmel. She didn't go up on top of the mount that day, but the nation of Israel did. The prophets of Baal did. And they had a trial that the nation of Israel witnessed that momentarily changed their lives. Elijah had said to them, I want you prophets of Baal to build a wooden altar and I want you to call to these gods that you worship and ask them to light that altar on fire. And if you remember the story, they spent the entire day doing everything from calling out to their pagan gods to cutting themselves, trying to induce a response. And at the end of the day, their gods which did not exist had not answered. Elijah rearranged the second altar, which had been knocked down during their gyrations. And you remember he poured water over it? He soaked the wood. He called out to our God and asked our God to let his presence be known. And God sent fire from heaven just as real as the fire that burns your fingers when you get too close to it. And he set that altar, soaked in wood and water, on fire, consumed the wood and lapped up the water. They killed the 450 prophets of Baal that day. The people of Israel fell down and worshiped God and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And you would have thought at that moment that a revival was striking that whole nation of Israel and things were going to change. King Ahab comes down and reports to his wife and tells her what happened on top of the mount. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. She's not thwarted. Saying, so may the gods, a little g, not a big g, so may the gods do to me and even more if I don't take your life by tomorrow at the same time. A death wish. My wife reminds me every now and then, and this makes me think of it, that for the most part, we're not of God-fearing people. In so many ways, not just secular America, but even the church, don't stand in awe of God and, and aren't fearful of him as a God of wrath as well as a God of grace and love. He's both. This woman did not fear God. 
And after all that had happened, a drought has struck their nation. They have economic problems. They have social unrest as a result of it. They have the 450 prophets that she's been encouraging are now dead. And she puts all that logic and reason aside and said, I'm going to get you killed, Elijah. She doesn't fear God. Don't you ever underestimate the evil that's around us. It's arrogant. It doesn't know the battle's already been won. What happens next after the threat? It's kind of shocking. Here's this man who's had a mountaintop experience, literally. And he gets the message, and if you look at verses 3 through 8, you see his response. His response is very simple. He is struck with fear. How does a person who's been in the presence of God, and God has worked through them in such a mighty way, suddenly put all of that aside and be filled with fear? You know how that happens? They revert back. They revert back to not looking at God and not listening to God. And while you and I who know Jesus Christ are born again, we can fall into that same entrapment daily, repeatedly, if we're not careful. And that's exactly where this godly man went. He stepped back. And he quit looking and listening to God, and he just looked to the circumstances, and it scared him. He began to run. If you can picture the northern kingdom of Israel, he runs south through the kingdom of Israel, crosses the border, goes into the kingdom of Judea, goes through the kingdom of Judea to Beersheba, a city on the southern border, and he stops there and takes his trusted servant who would give his life for Elijah. And he says, I don't even want you to come with me. I don't want anybody to know where I am. I don't want anybody to be able to find me. Can you hear the desperation in this man? Because fear has gripped him. And he goes a day's journey further south into the desert, finds a juniper tree and goes and sits down under a juniper tree and says, hey, God, I've had enough. I don't want to live anymore. Would you take my life, please? You know one of the things that's a consequence of breaking focus on God and not listening to God? We start thinking things we shouldn't ever think. Elijah says, hey, God, I want you to forget your Ten Commandments. I want you to murder me. We do that kind of foolishness. We think things we shouldn't think. And it's because we're not focused on the things of God. And when that starts to happen and you realize that's happening in your own life, the Holy Spirit's helping you realize that. Stop and say, I need to get refocused. I need to get back to where I have experienced God in a very personal way. I'm not in this by myself. No matter what the trial is, no matter what happens, I'm not by myself. Interesting thing about tribulation. If you hang around long enough, you're going to have some, aren't you? Have you learned that? 
I remember when I was a young man and Linda and I were just starting out. Oh, for the first 10 years, I was healthy, an athlete. The world was mine for the taking. Then I got a chunk of it and couldn't hardly handle it. And it got difficult and things started happening. Happening to people I loved, happening to people I was around. All kinds of challenges. Seems to me there are two kinds of tribulation that we experience before the second coming of Christ. One of those is a general kind of tribulation. You're standing under a tree and a coconut falls out and it lands on your head. And you say, why did that happen? Well, because of gravity. It just happens. And it happens sometimes to folks who are walking with the Lord. You have a general kind of tribulation. There are other times that we have a very specific tribulation. We do something we should not do, and we suffer the consequences. And very often I hear people say, well, that's spiritual warfare. Well, folks, a lot of time it's not spiritual warfare. Satan hadn't even taken notice of you. We're not that important often. You know what it is? It's spiritual disobedience, and we're suffering the consequences. Well, we're going to have both that general and that specific kind of tribulation in our life. And the only way to deal with that when either comes on us is to shift our attention very intentionally back to God and start looking at him and start listening to him, and things will work out. And he'll take care of us. Interesting thing. Once Elijah fell asleep, which is a reprieve from tribulation, God sends an angel to him. I hope you believe in angels. I hope there's some of them sitting around in this room right now helping us. An angel comes, and can't you just see the angel out in the middle of the wilderness reaching down and shaking Elijah and saying, Hey, wake up. Wake up from your rest. And already he has prepared a loaf of bread. Elijah didn't even smell it or feel the heat from the fire. He has a jar of water. He says, I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to get you ready for the rest of your life. And then Elijah falls asleep again. And a while later, the angel reaches out and awakens him again. And the angel says, eat of the bread, drink of the wine or the water, because you're going to need it. God has something for you to do in the future. Have you ever experienced that? When you're at your wit's end and things are all unraveling in your life and, and you can't get your arms around them and you can't master them any longer. Never could to start with, but we keep trying. And all of a sudden you look back and you say, you know, that stressful time is now behind me. How did it get behind me? Well, I got some rest and I ate on a regular basis. And God just picked up the slack and took care of me. He provided for me through his Holy Spirit and through his angels and through other people. And I'm now beyond that crisis. Have you had that experience? I certainly have. Well, God does that. He just sustains us and takes care of us when we need it most. Now, I want to stop for just a minute and give you a little theological expression. 
to think about. God is sovereign. God knows what's happened on top of Mount Carmel because he authored it. He was involved in it. But he also knows or knew what was going to happen when this whole nation of people rose up off the ground who had been calling out and saying, the Lord is our God, the Lord is our God. They had made that proclamation and God knew what came next. He knew the nation was not going to experience spiritual revival. And you know what he did? He allowed the humanness of Elijah, who broke focus on God and ran. He allowed the last voice in that land to leave. And he left that nation with pagan leadership. I yearn for another Billy Graham. Dwight L. Moody, Billy Sunday. God so graciously has given us a national figure who has kept the focus of this country on God. It's hard to have grown up in this country since its founding that God hasn't had somebody who's been getting the attention of believers and non-believers alike. Billy's in North Carolina in the latter part of his life. We need another national prophet. And it frightens me to think what happens if we don't have one. What has happened in the past happens over and over and over. I read somewhere, there's nothing new under the sun. We need to learn from history. And God pulled Elijah out of that country. If you look on down at the ninth through the 13th verses, you see a very beautiful thing start to unfold. It's God's response. Now, God's taking care of Elijah out in the wilderness, but he had a purpose in that, and the purpose was he wanted him to go to Mount Horeb. You remember the significance of the mount? It's where Moses and God resided together, and God blessed Moses. He now says to Elijah, I want you to go to Mount Horeb. Forty days' journey, mostly wilderness. And he gets to the mount, and picture yourself. He climbs up on the side and goes into a cave. He gets into the darkness of the cave, all alone. And God comes to him and says, Hey, Elijah, what are you doing here? That's a great question, isn't it? And what does Elijah say? Elijah says, well, you know, Lord, I was in Israel. And you're the God of hosts. And you're the God who took me there. And you're the God who worked through the drought. And you're the God who worked through the trial by fire. And look what the people did. They turned from you. They didn't listen. They didn't respond. And now they're trying to kill me. Folks, do you know what Elijah just said? He said, hey, Lord, I had it all figured out how it was supposed to happen in Israel, and I did what you asked me to do, and it didn't work out. Where were you, God? And he's dissatisfied with God. And you and I call out on our Heavenly Father and say, Father, we've got a plan. 
let us tell you our plan. And we explain to him our plan, whatever it is in our life, and our expectation is he's going to come along like Santa Claus and work it out for us and do what we want. And folks, he is a sovereign God, and the word sovereign means an independent authority. He doesn't invite us to have a committee meeting and figure out how it's going to be. He does that all by himself. So we come away disappointed. And we come away saying, where's God? And what we've done when that happens to us is we've started trying to operate above our pay scale. God did not delegate that authority to us. God wants us to be a witness. God wants us to keep our sight and our hearing focused on him and let him be God. And if we're not very careful, we do exactly what Adam and Eve did. We try to take control over life again and have it our way. And that's not what it's all about. Do you understand? It's so important that we grasp that. Because that's one of the little foxholes that we trip in all of the time. God passes by the mount. Elijah's inside. He hears the wind. And the wind is so strong that it's moving the rocks around. But God's not in that wind. Then the very cave and mountain that he's in begins to shake with an earthquake. But God was not in the earthquake either. Then there's this fierce fire outside, and and fire in Scripture typically represents God's presence. And Elijah knows that God's out there, but God wasn't in the fire. And then there's this gentle sound, a voice that calls out to Elijah and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Trying to get him to realize what he's been all about, that he's broken focus on God and he's not listening. And God is saying, take an inventory. See where you are. See what's happening. You know how you do that? turn the radio and the TV down. You get out of the crowd. And on a routine basis, you spend some time with the Lord. Because his voice, while it penetrates deep, is a quiet, still voice. And we live in a society that is inundated with noise. Do you spend time with the Lord? Do you? Just you and the Lord Jesus? You spend time in his word? I know you've been encouraged to do that for years. Do you do it? Can you see him? Can you hear him? He wants you. He wants that relationship. Let's pray. Father, we make such a mess out of life. One of the things that Elijah did, Lord, is he realized that he and his fathers had messed up. 
and that he was probably suffering the consequence of that, and we need to realize that also. Secure in our salvation, born again by your grace, people filled with your spirit, and still we get so comfortable that we quit looking and listening to you, and we try to take control again. Help us, Lord. Help us to overcome that. Thank you, dear God, for our time together in your word. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.